This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the search for the soldiers and Army civilians of tomorrow. The human capital leader of Army Futures Command on what she's looking for. A $2.5 billion plan for IT at the IRS. The agency's chief procurement officer tells you how they'll spend the money. And the number one story of the week, the Biden administration proposes billions of dollars to update federal government networks. Two government veterans explain how to get best value for that money. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Army's Futures Command is developing a strategy to upskill its workforce. It wants its soldiers and civilians to focus on things only humans can do and let automation do the rest. Kate Kelly is Chief Human Capital Officer at Army Futures Command. Kate, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You told me recently that a key element of what you're doing is predicting what the future fight looks like. How much of that predictive work is human capital work and how much of its military strategy and tactics, Kate? Francis, thanks so much for having me back. It's always great to talk with you and your audience and listeners. Thanks so much. It's a lot of intersection between the two is how I would answer that. There is such a huge focus today in Futures Command on what that predictive future fight might look like. And of course, your idea in talking through that would lead you to believe that this is about equipment, this is about operational concepts and about capabilities. And while all that is absolutely true, what Futures Command is really focused on now is the intersection of the human dimension with that future concept for warfare, and more importantly, with how that human interaction should enable and be in support with that type of fight. So there's really an interesting line of discussion right now that we're in within the command, trying to make sure that we are predicting that concept, we are defining and describing it in a way that makes sense to people and being realistic about the fact that we literally are trying to predict the future. And, you know, General Murray here at Army Futures Command likes to say, one thing we know about this is we probably won't get it all right. Um, but what he and I spend a lot of time talking about is how do we enable the talent to actually enable that fight? And so I think it's both. And I think it's really critical that while we're doing the kinds of equipment and concept development that you would traditionally think of in the Army. We are simultaneously working on skills and development of our soldiers, our civilians, and all the enabling partners that it takes to make this happen. How would you determine which things are uniquely human that only humans can do, and which things you can take away from the humans and let automation take? And how will you continue to analyze that over time? Because I imagine the evolution of automated tools will change that definition over time. Yes, I think you're exactly right on that. And I would say that there's a lot of thinking right now in Futures Command about the intersection of human intelligence and machine intelligence and how the decision cycles in the future are going to be exponentially smaller and more concise than perhaps in the past. And what I mean by that is that on that future battlefield, we know that we're going to have to be able to make quick, decisive decisions in theory, 
and I think this is proven very clearly in the in the private sector today, uh, automation should be able to help us do that better. Um, the key, however, is where is that human interaction and where does it stay and remain? Because we fully recognize that we cannot walk towards a fully automated system. There has to be an intersection of people. And that's partially about the analysis and the decision cycle, but it's also about who understands the capabilities and the equipment that we have in that future space and who can maneuver, manipulate, and manage that equipment as well. So there's a component for humans that they have to understand the capabilities that they have control over as much as they have to be part of the decision cycle itself. This is, it's fun and sexy to talk about the big six priorities and how all of this applies to them. But I imagine this is something that you're looking at for back office functions and everything, isn't it, Kate? Yeah, I think so. I think what we're seeing right now uh, in one of our more innovative uh, startups here at Army Futures Command is we're building something we're calling a software factory. Really what we're doing is we're pulling talent from across the Army, talent that we already have in the military. We recruited it and brought it in through a variety of means, uh, both officer, enlisted, warrant officer. We've trained it to be something else in the Army because the Army doesn't have a software-focused career field, let's say. And what we're finding is that this talent is already inside the Army. We're, we're pulling it out of its existing career field and career track, and we're training it to be software developers, people who understand coding, coding languages, and who can actually build interfaces that can help commanders on the battlefield, as an example, solve a problem or make a decisive decision for action. But also, this technology and this capability should enable the back office as well. Much of the Army we know today is still operating on legacy IT infrastructure and legacy IT systems. And so what can our software coder literate population do to help the Army on both the front end, so to speak? We like to say the pointy end of the spear. But more importantly, what are we doing in the back office to make things more seamless and more streamlined? Right now, today, you know, the Army doesn't have this talent officially recognized. And so the other interesting thing that Futures Command is doing is trying to not only build the skill and upskill this population, but then make sure that we proliferate it across the Army in a meaningful way and that they're incentivized to remain with the Army and do this type of work. Okay, less than a minute left. How will you measure if you've been successful and at what point will you be able to think we can step back and say, how are we doing? I think there are two components to this. Number one, we have to deliver on the capabilities. By lar in large, the, the key for Army Futures Command and for some of our talent initiatives is to deliver on what we're promising. So that means we need to put equipment in the hands of soldiers. It needs to work and it needs to be timely. Um, but more importantly, when it comes to the skill development, we need to make sure that we have people who understand how to manage and maneuver it and also fix and repair it in a, de in a degraded environment, as an example. And then for me, the real litmus test is do those people with those new skills stay with the Army, right? Because we're really building talent that is quite frankly needed across uh, the private sector as well. And so what I'm trying to do is make sure that we keep and hold on to the right people for the right reasons who have the skills to work in this future space. Kate Kelly, thank you very much for joining me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Francis. Always a pleasure. Up next, a massive contract coming from the Internal Revenue Service. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the billion-dollar deal that touches almost every system the agency uses. You're watching 7 News.
Welcome back. The Internal Revenue Service has a new solicitation on the street for a contract that could be worth up to $2.5 billion. NextGov reports that contract could touch every tax system the government uses. Shauna Webers is Chief Procurement Officer at the IRS. Shauna, welcome back. It's great to have you back on the program. How did you and your team in the acquisition office work with your mission delivery partners across the IRS to develop this contract instead of just writing up a shopping list? Hey Francis, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, well, initially the program office came to us in procurement and they proposed awarding 10 to 12 BPAs, blanket purchase agreements for this particular requirement because it is so large. However, this strategy is really complex and time consuming, both in terms of making the awards and contract administration, as well as uh, having to compete every single task that came up to procurement one at a time. And so we looked hard at a couple of things. First, we wanted to know what the customer was really trying to accomplish. We did not just look at what their technical requirements were, but we wanted to know what is the outcome that they wanted to achieve. Second, we looked at how we could create an enterprise-wide contract vehicle that maximizes flexibility to deliver the highly skilled IT resources based off a dynamic technology requirement, right? And as everyone knows, technology does seem to uh, change at a rapid pace and so we needed to build in flexibility in the contract vehicle and thirdly we looked at how do we get the contract in place as quickly as possible that could meet the needs and was in the best interest of the IRS so taking all of these three factors into account we concluded that the best strategy is actually to issue three separate task orders using a GSA best-in-class vehicle. And the requirement we're talking about today, the Enterprise Development Operations Services Task Order, is the largest and the first of the three task orders that we anticipate issuing to completely fulfill this large requirement that IT sent to us. FYI, the second task order is anticipated to be for program program management and advisory services. And the third task order is anticipated to be around testing. You've got a lot in this. This is huge. 24 systems that I counted um, that this first one will touch. Um, what was the speed, the main reason you decided to do this off of GWAC, Shauna? It was one of the reasons, right? So the, the, the intent of GWACs by nature, they're designed to streamline the procurement process. And so we definitely wanted to make sure that we were leveraging the what is available to us in the procurement space so that we could be quick, efficient as possible, but also where we felt that the contractor pool was large enough to where we could have adequate competition to meet this large requirement. What was the conversation like when your mission partners came to you and said, we want to do these 10 to 12 BPAs, and you went about the process of educating them as to why your approach makes more sense and is going to give them a better result? Well, it's interesting. I'm really proud of the contracting officer in this instance. Um, historically, there were opportunities and times where we just took what the customer gave us and we just moved forward because that seemed to be the easiest path, right? As opposed to questioning it. But he spent a lot of time with the customer really trying to understand not only the technical requirements, but more important, importantly, what the outcome was that they were trying to achieve, right? And so the outcomes are really the impetus of what we 
focused on of how we were able to deliver a contract vehicle to give them these outcomes. You know, for an example, um, reducing operational costs by eliminating contract and skill set redundancies while still maintaining current effectiveness. You know, so we, the IRS, we expect to see a minimum of 15 to 20% reduction in our operations and maintenance sustainment services, our annual spend based off of this contract approach that we looked at. Um, you know, and also the other thing that we looked at was how do we decrease the level of effort required once the contract is awarded. Contract administration is a, a complex task in and of itself, especially when you have this type of broad IT services contract that we're looking at. And so what we were what we were looking at doing is really creating a strategy that was beneficial for us on the procurement side, but beneficial for the customer. And I think that you'll start seeing this dynamic, flexible approach when we release our draft documents in the next, I think two weeks is our intent, is to get those draft documents on the street to get feedback from industry. And importantly, the contract structure will utilize a combination of time and materials, agile points, operational and surge cleanse or contract line items. So it gives a lot of flexibility how we've actually structured it. Shauna, we're starting to run out of time. You have to shout out that CO that did such a good job and, and tell me how you'll measure the success of this over time. Great, thank you. Michael Villano, boom, drop the mic, he's the man. Uh, really, we're still working out some of the details on, on how we're gonna measure the success, but we're looking at using a combination of technical management and cost performance from prior years with a weighted or numerical scoring system. And so each one of those categories will have a weight assigned to them and then we'll assign scores and then that will help us make the determination if the contractor is eligible for the award term. So follow the follow on year award terms. Shana Webers, thanks very much for coming on the program today. Great to have you back. It was great, thank you. Have a great day. Up next, the number one story of the week. The Biden administration proposes another huge cash infusion for government IT. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what could be in line for fixes and where the money's coming from? You're watching 7 News. Now, the number one story of the week, the Biden administration will ask Congress for billions of dollars to upgrade federal government IT systems. The White House wants $5 billion just for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Jim Gifferer is principal at Fidelis Technology. He's former chief information officer at VA. Margie Graves is vice chair of the American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council. She's former deputy chief information officer of the United States and former deputy CIO at the Department of Homeland Security. Friends, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. Margie, I'll start with you. Where is the biggest opportunity for agencies to get bang for the buck out of the money that the administration wants to give them? Well, first of all, Francis, I'd like to give a shout out to all of those uh, across GSA, OMB, and Congress who have actually brought the TMF to fruition. It's been a six-year journey. And of course, we're just absolutely thrilled to see the kind of largesse that's being offered into the fund at this point in time. And I think that can be effectively applied to truly address the scope of the technical debt that exists across the federal government. Uh, what I mean by that is that we originally uh, asked for $3 billion in the first round of the, the TMF proposal. 
And that number was derived from the fact that we felt that there was $12 billion worth of technical debt that existed just from our quick thumbnail review of the existing contracts and the existing installed base. And to have this kind of funding applied to the fund at this point in time is, is really game changing. The technical debt must be aligned with the high value assets and all of the other uh, aspects of making sure that the agencies have effectively put together their roadmaps for modernization and know how to sequence the projects uh, so that they can get that bang for the buck that you were talking about. Uh, we need to see that tied back to the strategic plan of each agency and also to the priorities of this administration. And that will allow us to move forward with alacrity. Uh, Jim, welcome. It's great to have you back on the program. Uh, what, what are the biggest areas of need in your view at VA if it gets this $5 billion the administration proposed in the skinny budget? Sure, Francis, and good morning. Great to join you and, and Margie. Um, you know, the f first thing to understand about the $5 billion kind of uh, uh, riffing off Margie's conversation of technical debt is um, that only represents about 3.9% of IT spend over $128 billion proposed discretionary for FY22. Uh, so when you look at that, and you know, our, our previous federal CIO, Suzette Kent, used to say, if you're spending less than 5%, you're barely even operating the enterprise, much less modernizing it or transforming it and certainly growing commensurate lines of business and addressing the technical debt. So the, the agency budget will be very challenged, even at that large number, a much larger number on the denominator, uh, to keep up and address the debt in the in the year that which it's incurred. Uh, the biggest uh, needs will be around infrastructure readiness program. Uh, that's anywhere from about six to $700 million. And again, the department is not addressing that debt. There is a gap every year in terms of that hardware, software, and other debt uh, that comprises that. Margie, to Jim's point, what, and let's set aside the numbers. What does addressing the technical debt get you? Does it bring you back to par? Does it bring you to, uh, from a modernization or transformation perspective, does it get you back to par? Does it start to get an agency ahead of the curve? Or am I thinking about it the wrong way? If you're applying these dollars uh, strategically, it can actually get you ahead of the curve. On If you narrow your aperture to those high value assets that I was just talking about, and, and you know what your sequence should be, i.e. how should the dominoes fall on your modernization roadmap? What is the most critical citizen facing mission impact uh, that you can address and tackle that one first? And then that comes building blocks. If you're looking at this holistically, uh, and using uh, the right kind of approach in terms of DevSecOps and in terms of choosing platforms that can be reutilized uh, for other modernization efforts, then you start to see that kind of acceleration that we're looking for in the actual implementation. Jim, the number of five billion sounds pretty sexy, but in the context that you just laid it out there, it doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal. Am I missing something? Am I reading it wrong? Well, if you look at the OMB numbers uh, from previous years, an average amount for the top 14 agencies that are spending over a billion dollars annually in their portfolio, the average spend is about 9.8% of their discretionary budget. 
some of the highest are Treasury and SSA, which you expect in financial services that are up north of 20%. So when you look at an anemic 3.9% and then pile on in, in a balance sheet perspective that you have $4 billion plus dollars in terms of hardware, software, and human capital debt that's, that's on your books and unaddressed, uh, it really does present some real headwinds, especially in an agency that continues to grow and get massive supplementals. Margie, um, the, uh, we know we're going to get a billion in the TMF that you mentioned earlier in our conversation from the Stimulus Act. The administration wants more in the budget this year. How do you expect to see the TMF scale up? Will it be bigger projects? Will it be more projects, some combination of both or some other construct, do you think? I think it will be some combination of both. And I'd like to uh, follow on to what Jim was saying. Uh, in the sense of being able to uh, to really have an impact, uh, the TMF does not stand alone. We are talking about utilizing the TMF as a tool, as a funding flexibility. However, funding exists within base budgets. Funding exists uh, in other uh, areas where the stimulus package has applied uh, additional funding to GSA, to USDS and to uh, CISA in DHS, we should look holistically across all of those funding sources to ensure that we are, are utilizing every dollar uh, for maximum benefit. And some of those individual funding streams can be combined in order to have a greater impact. Margie Graves, Jim Giffer, thanks very much for joining me. Great to have you on the program today. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you text for our daily program guide. Text GOVMATTERS to 58671. Back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's... It's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. 
And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services, and these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a uh, a plan for transforming, and it didn't. The, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks, 
through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.